Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the warring factions of both progressives and conservatives who are all trying to amend the Constitution in various ways. Today's show is going to be a little bit different uh, due to the content. Clips today come from both progressive and conservative sources, and I will be your guide walking you through the topic. Clips today come from the Tom Hartman program, Hip Hughes, Democracy Now!, The New American, The Young Turks, The Western Free Press, and Rebel HQ. So to start, what you need to know is that people on both the left and the right want to amend the Constitution, but for very different reasons. We'll start with the argument from the left that you might be familiar with. The second doctrine that money equals speech is equally odious, also created by the court. That seminal case is... Of course, Buckley versus Vallejo and then First National Bank versus Bellotti and a host of other cases. But at its core, it says that the expenditure of money, which is property, somehow is and, the and, – And the expenditure is a behavior. And we always Correct. said we could regulate behaviors. <laughs> and that has always been the case, right? But this creation, if money is speech and First Amendment – Amendment protected speech. What that means is the wealthy elite can spend unlimited amounts of money in elections, which they're doing. Let's be honest, Tom. You yourself have been chronicling this. It's getting worse and worse and worse. The Supreme Court has turned our elections into auctions. And what really angers me, and I mean at a righteous anger level, is that they are stealing our sacred right to self-government and then using the legal system to legalize the theft and tell us, well, it's just the law. You have to accept But, Tom, we don't have to accept it any more than the American revolutionaries had to accept what the English parliament were doing, any more than the abolitionists accepted what the courts were doing or the women's suffrage movement or the trade union movement or the civil rights movement. We got to do what other movements have done, educate, agitate, organize and build a mass movement that ultimately takes its way into codification at the United States constitutional level. Supreme Court. We Uh, have to amending the Constitution, rather, excuse me. You know, one of the things that boggles my mind, David, and I just, you know, in the last year or so has this occurred to me and, you know, it was almost like a light bulb going off over my head. The argument that conservatives make, and they they come on this program and on my TV show all the time and say, oh, yeah, of course, money is speech. I mean, you know, it's, it's free speech. And you, know, you want to deny the Koch brothers their right to speak? I mean, that's not nice um, sort of thing. And... As if in our society we don't have limits on speech that actually enhance speech. And I'm not talking about yelling fire in a crowded theater. If you have, for example, a city council meeting, right, and there's some contentious issue, some zoning issue going on, and it's a one-hour meeting, and 30 people show up and want to speak, the mayor of the town will say, everybody gets two minutes. Correct. And so we limit speech in order to increase the variety of speech. We actually enhance free speech by limiting speech. The Supreme Court did it this morning. They said to the to the litigators in the, in the gay marriage case, you guys have one hour and 15 minutes. That's it. They limited free speech. But then they say to the Koch brothers, oh, there's no limit on your speech. 100 million, 200 million, 600 million, 899 million. No problem. Correct. No limit. 
So let me, you know, Tom, I, as a lawyer, what I really appreciate your ability to sort of cut through, because what you've just done is articulate in my estimation, and I think that most people who have thought about this, this is an equal protection argument, yes. right? And so if you allow unlimited amounts of money in elections, what you let the, the wealthy now can buy microphones and amplifiers and flood the airwaves and flood all of the public discourse so that it drowns out the voices of ordinary people, right? Right. So that's what's happening. It's an equal protection argument, pure and simple. That's the reason why Move to Men is getting larger, stronger and better organized every day. You know, you and I've been knowing each other for a while, right? Yeah. Uh, it was a crazy idea to think that we could actually go against these legal doctrines when we first started. You were one of the initial supporters of Move to Men when we were 12 people in a living room. I remember. Today, we're 386,000 people, Tom, and we have over 100 local affiliates. That is community organizers who are actually doing the work in their communities day to day. And 600 communities have passed resolutions of support of our proposed amendment. And 16 states are on record calling for a constitutional amendment. And the metric I'm most proud of, Tom, we've been on the ballot over 300 times in this country, not just city council members voting on it, but letting ordinary people vote on the issue, which gives move to amend both the opportunity and the responsibility to educate voters about just what what the heck this all means. Tom, we've been on the ballot over 300 times. Can you guess how many times we've won? 100% of the time. 100% of the time. We haven't <laughs> lost yet. And yes, that includes Boston, Massachusetts, and Madison, and Ann Arbor, and you know San Francisco, the liberal places. You know where else we win? Salt Lake City, Utah. We won in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is the hometown of Tea Party Governor Scott Walker, where they haven't voted for a Democrat for president or Congress in over 40 years. Move to Men was on the ballot there, and we won. We won in a statewide initiative in Montana. Yeah, that Montana. And get this, 75% of the people, Tom, that's because what I know and you know is ordinary people who are not just spewing forth talking points, but are actually engaged in the Democratic Republic and actually believe that our country is supposed to be a republic where we the people rule. We recognize that the economic royalists have taken over every aspect of our society. Move to Amend is growing because ordinary people are coming together to say, it's our country and we want it back. So that's from Move to Amend, one of the progressive factions looking to amend the Constitution, specifically by pressuring Congress to pass an amendment. Next up, we're going to learn about the so-called Liberty Amendment some on the right want to add to the Constitution. These come from a book written by a right-wing talk show host, Mark Levin, called The Liberty Amendment. So, restoring the republic, and as we get into these 11 ideas, we fundamentally just explain kind of both sides, why some people think it's a great idea, most of them, and some, you know, are aghast at the suggestion. But basically, the right would say that these are amendments that are needed to restore the republic, that the federal government has gone out of control, that federal bureaucracy and the way that the interstate commerce has been interpreted, the elastic clause has been interpreted, has really led us to a runaway government, and that we need an amendment or multi multiple amendments to kind of whip us back in line, that it's not going to be enough to do it legislatively, that we're just too far off the grid, and that these are big ideas to really kind of, you know, go back to what the founders intended. 
period, which is a very restrained government where states are sovereign and where uh, the federal government is kind of put in its corner. Nobody puts baby in a corner. So it won't be able to, you know, tyrannize liberty. That's the basic idea. But people on the other side, they would argue that these are horrible ideas that basically that the right is afraid, they would probably say, that they don't have the numbers in the future. So the only way that they can maintain control and they can get what they want, which is you know an unregulated government where big businesses are allowed to do what they want and people are allowed to discriminate, is to amend the Constitution. Um, progressives would say that we already have a restrained system of checks and balances. In fact, we have four kind of layers that you have to go through from democracy to actually having legislation, um, you know, being the law of the land. And most Western democracies have two or three levels. Four levels is plenty. They say that these liberty amendments really represent not checks and balances, uh, but locks and chains that are going to stop the people, even if the vast majority of the people want something, let's say universal health care from never being a reality because of these proposed amendments. So you can love them, you can hate them, but you probably should know them because that's what smart people do is they know stuff. So let's do it. One through 10. We'll do them fast. So the group sponsoring the state of conventions would want number one term limits, that they believe that people are in Washington too long, they become creatures of the nest itself, and that uh, we need to strain that in Strain that in, drain that in, rein that in by having term limits. I believe 14 for House members, 12 for senators, but basically saying that your time in Washington is limited and we're going to replace you. Of course, people who don't like this would say that, number one, uh, by flipping people that you don't have veterans down there that know what they're doing, you have rookies all of the time, and that you're really taking the choice of who's going to represent the state and the people out of the hands of the people, and that's the first one, term limits. So number two is a big one. It doesn't sound like a big one, but people that believe that the federal government has gotten out of control. Now, remember, the 17th Amendment changes the way that we choose senators. Senators are supposed to represent the states themselves, so originally in the Constitution, they were chosen by state legislatures. Today, because of the 17th Amendment passed during the Progressive Era, they're chosen by the people themselves. This was done back then, they said, because of the vast amount of corruption that was going on within big business and the state legislatures. Now, people that are writing these liberty amendments, they know that this would have a dramatic change on the country because in 34 out of the 50 states are dominated by Republicans. So therefore, if you take 34 and you times it by two, I think you get 68 Republican senators. So therefore, in terms of passing legislation, you know, nothing would get out of the Senate that would be progressive. And of course, those that defend repealing the 17th Amendment say, again, it's restoring the republic to the way it's supposed to be, that we're supposed to have states that are sovereign, that are lending their voice to uh, the federal government. And then if anything, the House of Representatives represents the country as a whole. But senators are supposed to represent their states, so we should let the states choose them themselves. So that would be the second thing, would be restoring the dignity of the republic by repealing the 17th Amendment. Bree is dealing with this pesky Supreme Court. Now, those on the right think that the Supreme Court, over its course, has um, gotten it wrong a lot, that it's interpreted things like the Interstate Commerce Clause um, in not an original, intentional way, and has really created, in a sense, law through their interpretation. So they want to rein that in. And one of their ideas is to have term limits for Supreme Court justices. Of course, we know 
that they serve lifetime terms now. They're not pressured by the whims of people that they're kind of the referees sticking to the rule book themselves and that if they've done anything wrong, there's an impeachment process to get rid of them. But by turning them over, I think 14 years was the number in my head, that this would, uh, number one, uh, change the makeup of the Supreme Court. But if you pair that with getting you know rid of the 17th Amendment, Senate is going to be a huge roadblock for any progressive Supreme Court to get, you know, um, ratified if they were nominated by a president. So uh, definitely trying to affect judicial review, rein the court in through some term limits for those black robbers. So number four is a balanced budget amendment. We talked about this previously, that there's been an effort and they've gotten 28 states to apply for a specific uh, constitutional convention by the states just for that one proposal. But this would basically cap the amount of money that the federal government would be able to spend. You can't spend more than you bring in. Now, those that support this amendment, of course, say that it's going to bring fiscal responsibility. And at the same time, it's going to shrink the federal government. It's going to get a lot of things checked off uh, their, their bucket list like getting rid of maybe Medicare or Social Security or things that they see are outside the realm of what the constitutional should be allowing. Now, of course, those that are against this would say that it would hamstring the federal government and that if there were emergencies and things like that, it would be very difficult to make our obligations and that sometimes you have to spend to make. So a balanced budget amendment's been out there for a long time, but that's definitely one of the Liberty Amendments. Number five's a little bit weird. Define the tax deadline as the day before the election. And maybe you can help me down in the comments below. I'm trying to figure out why. I'm thinking that they want you walking into the election booth. Grr, federal government just took all my money and that that's going to influence uh, your vote. So I'm not exactly sure on one, but that is number five of the proposed Liberty Amendments. But that's definitely one of the proposed amendments for the Liberty Amendments. That's right, tax day, the day before the election. So number six is periodic reauthorization of federal bureaucracies. So you would take things like the Department of Education and every few years, its charter would run out and would have to be reauthorized by Congress in order to stay into existence. So of course, this is a way um, for the right to shrink the size of government, to get rid of what they see as departments that aren't constitutional. It's not the job of the federal government to deal with education or let's say maybe the EPA for environment or something like that. So because it's very difficult to get rid of them, let's just amend the constitution to make it easier to get rid of them. Of course, progressives would be aghast at this because um, most of the these departments would probably spend most of their time trying to uh, stay in existence rather than doing the regulatory work that progressives see as you know, their duty to keep our food supply safe, to keep the air clean, to make sure that, you know, every child has a chance to learn. All right, how about that? Number six, periodic reviews and reauthorization of federal bureaucracy. Number seven, the Commerce Clause. The Interstate Commerce Clause has been kind of a thorn in the side of the right for a long time because the Supreme Court has really used that, whether it's with Obamacare or the EPA, to, in a sense, expand the federal government's ability to regulate things. Because the Interstate Commerce Clause has been seen as giving the federal government some sort of control over things that uh, deal with you know, commerce in many states, whether it's air crossing or railroads or whatever it is, giving the federal government more power. Uh, conservatives would like to see this really in what they think is the original intention wrote about in the Federalist Papers as being something to safeguard states from other states interfering with their commerce. So they might want to uh, redefine the Interstate Commerce Clause to limit its scope and limit the regulatory powers of the federal government. Number eight, eminent domain. Eminent domain is in the Constitution. It basically gives the federal government the right to take your land. That's right. No grazing on that land. We're going to build a railroad. 
And this is basically something that conservatives and some progressives alike see as too much power for the federal government and that there needs to be uh, you know, more specifically crafted language to make sure that the federal government isn't abusing this power and that the sovereign states and the right of the people outweigh the federal government's ability uh, to demand that it's for the public good to take your stuff. So number nine deals with Article 5 itself because it's such a pain to amend the Constitution to get these liberty amendments. One of the proposed liberty amendments is make it easier to do more liberty amendments. So literally change the percentages in Article 5 so perhaps it's going to be um, only two-thirds need to ratify from a state convention rather than the three-fourths necessary. But they're looking at definitely tinkering with the language of the Constitution to make it easier to amend the Constitution in what they see as a more perfect republic. Of course, progressives might like that if they get their way, but if not, they'd probably be against it. Number 10, nullification. Nullification is basically a state trying to nullify a federal law. Um, this has happened before, and it pretty much caused darn near civil war. Um, but basically, this would allow this amendment, two-thirds of the states, to nullify federal law, to basically say, Obamacare, no, two-thirds of the states are against it, so we don't care if it's federal law, we're going to be able to ignore it. Um, and some of the people that are for this liberty amendment, they want to extend that to Supreme Court decisions as well. So if it's something like, uh, you know, gay marriage, if two-thirds of the states don't like it, it would nullify that Supreme Court decision. Um, many progressives would be aghast at this. They would say that this is, you know, unconstitutional, that they're trying to rewrite the Constitution to get what they want, and that they would be, in a sense, really um, limiting the ability to protect liberty for those that are at the most risk of losing liberty. Uh, but needless to say, two-thirds to nullify federal law, two-thirds to nullify Supreme Court decisions, get out of here! Number 11 is photo ID to vote, to amend it into the Constitution. Of course, uh, Voter laws like this have been springing up across the country, and we'll give both sides of it right now. People on the left and progressives say that um, it should be easy to vote, that by putting barriers in front of people, difficult for some people to get to the DMV. Some people don't have licenses. The poorer you are, the less likely you are to have it. Um, and that voter fraud has never really been a problem, that this is a way that the right is trying to use to limit democracy, to limit the amount of people that vote, because the less people vote, the better they do. Of course, the other side is that we have to you know, maintain the, the sanctity of elections, that we have to make sure we know you're the person who's voting, and that this is only common sense, that you know, to safeguard democracy, you need to be able to have some type of regulatory procedure to make sure that people that are voting are legal and that it's a valid and legal vote. So just a quick thought on, on those amendments. Now, look, I already know that conservatives don't like democracy and love to prevent people from voting. Um, but honestly, this is the first time I had heard that they actually want to repeal the right of voters to elect their own senators. I can hardly believe they're serious because we already had this fight. It's already an amendment to allow senators to be directly uh, elected by the people. And the old system was so bad, so anti-democratic, uh, so corrupt that we had to reform it. And now they want to go back to that old system just to stuff the Senate with more Republicans. So just a quick reminder that the Senate is already designed to be a dramatically conservative body that institutionally favors smaller, less densely populated states. 
All one really needs to know is that Wyoming, with 600,000 residents, a little less, uh, gets the same number of senators as California with nearly 40 million residents. If the Senate was representative and Wyoming still got two senators, each representing, you know, about 300,000 people, then California should be able to elect about 133 senators. And to put it into more concrete terms, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court for a lifetime appointment by 50 senators who collectively represent only 44% of the national population. So conservatives who live in those small states and the Republican Party in general already benefits massively from the institutionally conservative nature of the Senate, and it was made that way on purpose. But it's still not enough for them. They also want to cut out the voters entirely to rig it even more in their favor and away from the will of the actual voting public. Just compare that to all of the reforms the left is calling for and how every one of them is targeted at more accurately expressing the will of the people, not less. Honestly, I do not envy conservatives whose ideas are so poorly received that they have to resort to opposing representative democracy itself in order to try to get their way. Like, I can admit that the democratic reforms I want to see would also help my policy goals, but it's just because they're popular and people like them. You know, at least I get to be on the side of democracy and my policy goals at the same time, rather than having to fight for for a system that would allow like 40% of the country to tell the other 60% how everything's going to be. And those are my thoughts on just one of those amendments. Uh, next up, though, uh, we're going to go back to the left, and we're going to hear a debate between opposing progressive factions who both want reform, but in different ways. We're hosting a debate with two critics of Citizens United on opposite ends of the amendment issue. In Washington, Mark Schmidt's with us, the senior fellow at the Roosevelt Institute and former editor of The American Prospect. Here in New York, we're joined by John Boniface, a constitutional attorney, co-founder and director of Free Speech for People. He's helped lead the amendment efforts. Mark and John, we welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, well, why don't we start with John, lay out why it is you're pushing this amendment and where it stands in the country right now. Sure. Well, you know, Amy, when we launched this campaign the day of the Citizens United ruling, there were plenty of skeptics who thought it couldn't be built. This movement wouldn't have any staying power. It was too difficult. And I think we've proven with our allies in the field, Common Cause, Public Citizen, People for the American Way, Move to Amend, and many others, that those skeptics are now wrong. Eleven states are on record calling for a constitutional amendment. 500-plus cities and towns across the country, members of Congress, business leaders, religious leaders, and the President of the United States have all come out in support of this. And we need this amendment because the only way to overturn a United States Supreme Court ruling is through a constitutional amendment or waiting for a new majority of the Supreme Court to do so. And the people understand this country that the Supreme Court is wrong on this basic question. Corporations are not people. They do not breathe. They do not think. They do not have a conscience. They're artificial entities that we create, and people should govern over corporations, not the other way around. And so the constitutional amendment says exactly what? 
Well, there are various proposals out there, but there are two major problems that the constitutional amendment needs to address. First, it needs to address the point that Congress and the states shall have the authority to limit overall campaign spending and campaign contributions. This dates back to a 1976 ruling, Buckley v. Vallejo, which equated money with speech and set forth this system of unlimited campaign spending we have today. The other problem is the problem of corporations being treated as people under the Constitution. These corporations argue uh, in court cases after court cases that they, in fact, have the rights of people, natural persons, and those arguments are being used to strike down public interest laws protecting our environment, our health care, consumer rights, civil rights, and now our elections. And we need to address both problems via these amendment bills. So, Mark Schmidt, can you explain why it is that you're opposed to efforts uh, at a constitutional amendment? Uh, sure, and I'm, and I'm glad to be here. I, I've always viewed, I, I'm not surprised that the constitutional amendment is, is, has caught on. I was not a, I didn't, I wasn't the kind of skeptic that, that John describes. I think it's easy to, to describe. I think it's easy to get, get people to sign a petition for it, uh, cause it sounds very clear cut. I view it as a real distraction from some real progress that we can make on money in politics, because while you can build a movement around these, these vari- yeah, there are like 17 different versions of the amendment, uh, while you can build a movement around this concept, the message it sends is we can't do anything until we have a constitutional amendment, and under the current circumstances, we can't do anything until we have a constitutional amendment is exactly the same as saying we can't do anything. And so I think that's just sending the wrong signal uh, to people and overlooking the tremendous progress that's actually being made, which John knows because he was there at the birth of it, really, on public financing that offsets the role of, of big money from individuals and big money from corporations, which really are not dramatically different, uh, whether Sheldon Adelson writes money as an individual or through his corporate entity. It really doesn't matter all that much, but we can offset that money with good public financing, such as in New York City, Arizona, uh, Connecticut. These systems are popular, they're resilient, the cor- they withstand cha- legal challenges, and that's really where, uh, you know, the energy ought to be focused at this point. But why can't, Mark Schmidt, why can't these efforts take place in conjunction with an effort to push through the constitutional amendment? Well, as long as, you know, to the extent that you're, that you're making clear that you don't need the constitutional amendment to do, to, to, to make some progress, uh, you know, it's not, it's not the worst thing in the world. A lot of it depends on which amendment it is. I, I don't have a problem with an amendment that overturns Buckley, uh, v. Vallejo, uh, and, and says that we can, we can limit overall spending on a campaign as well as as contributions the corporate personhood issue is a lot more complicated i mean a simple simple example of it is uh john works for uh free an organization called free speech for the people incorporated it's a corporation uh corporations are how we organize everything in in american society it's how you know political parties are incorporated it's really the form of organization we use and at some level you know i work for a corporation uh many of these corporations are actually Organized for the purpose of political speech. So, in a sense, so I think it's a pretty big leap, uh, and, and and goes way beyond what actually happened in Citizens United, in which corporate personhood is a very tangential concept to Citizens United. So, in a sense, John, you work for the man because if a corporation is a person <laughs> and you work for a corporation, well, I guess for the man or the woman. But well, what's what do you think is wrong with what Mark's saying that these other efforts would be more productive? Well, first, let me say that there's a lot that Mark and I agree on. I mean, public funding of elections is a 
critical reform, and I couldn't agree more that that needs to happen as well. Where we may disagree is the idea that somehow these are not complementary efforts. In fact, a constitutional amendment campaign, which returns the country to the first principal question of what we are as a nation, is it we the people or we the corporations, can help propel these other kinds of important reforms. So I am a longstanding advocate for public funding elections. I believe in it. But the Citizens United ruling has set us on a course which allows these artificial entities to now spend unlimited amounts of corporate dollars into our elections, undermining any public funding system. We need both efforts to go forward. As for the point that Free Speech for People, Inc., uh, is a corporation that somehow should have free speech rights, it's just anth antithetical to what the framers intended, what our Constitution is about. I'm a natural person, you're a natural person, Nermeen's a natural person, Mark's a natural person, but these corporate entities are not natural persons. Why we are, are they bestowed with this? Well, this is an artificial creation, really, of corporate America over the past 30 years in the most recent era to undermine the First Amendment and the Constitution. The argument being made that these entities need to have free speech rights alongside natural persons. But, you know, the point here is that the members of Free Speech for People Incorporated, the supporters, all have constitutional rights. Nothing's going to be changed by these constitutional amendments on that point. What will be changed is restoring democracy to the people, making clear that we govern over corporations, not the other way around. Uh, John, can you also respond to what Mark Schmidt said about there being something like 17 versions of this amendment? Well, look, we're at an early stage in the drafting of this amendment language. The key thing that has to be done here is to build a broad grassroots movement for this amendment. And we're more than a quarter of the way there, with over 11 states on record. It takes 38 states to ratify, and now many members of Congress coming forward. We support Congressman McGovern's amendment bills that he's introduced, the People's Rights Amendment, H.J. Res. 21, and the amendment we call the Political Equality Amendment, H.J. Res. 20, which would deal with these two basic problems, unlimited campaign spending and the problem of fabricated doctrine of corporate constitutional rights. But we're not at the point now where we have to all come together behind one specific uh, about, uh, language. What we really need to do here is build this broad movement, which is being built. And as you said in the opening, there are many other states that, where these resolutions are advancing. Again, this propels other reforms, including public funding elections, transparency, shareholder approval. We need this vibrant democracy movement if we're going to protect the promise of American self-government of form by the people. Okay, so you get a sense that on the left, there there's a debate between people who both want reform but differ on what reforms they want or whether they think they would be effective or be distracting one from the other. And, and I just want to point out with this next clip that a similar debate is happening on the right. There is a very far right-wing organization that is dead set against constitutional amendments uh, that the right is proposing, and uh, they have a whole lot of reasons for it, but I found this clip and it's it's amusing on top of demonstrating uh the difference of opinion so you'll get a sense from this why wouldn't a balanced budget amendment work as planned there are a number of different flaws with this approach to trying to rein in federal spending for example, right now we have 28 states that have applied for an article 5 convention for balance budget, budget amendment and they include an escape clause saying that Congress would be required to balance the budget except during times of national emergency. 
Now, when was the last time we had a national emergency? And the answer is, check your watch, it's right now, right today's now. date, today's time. We're under multiple national emergencies simultaneously declared, and we have continually been under national emergencies since 1979. So looking forward, there's no likelihood that we're going to have a time when we're not under s several national emergencies giving Congress the excuse to not balance the budget. So on the one hand, there's no likelihood that it's going to balance the budget by passing this. But then there's also some dangers to it as well. That, for example, if we pass a balanced budget amendment saying Congress can spend money up to and including the amount of revenue, they are going to trim back their spending? Or are they going to raise taxes to meet their current spending levels? More likely the second of the two. But in addition to that, depending on how it's worded, it's likely to give tacit approval to Congress spending money on anything they want to, whether it's enumerated powers or not, as long as it's within the revenue being brought in, as long as the budget balances. So essentially a, a BBA may actually force Congress to raise taxes on the American people then? Yes, force Congress to raise taxes, and number two, give constitutional authorization for Congress to spend money on anything as long as it's within the budget. You just expanded the enumeration of powers to anything and pretty much just disregarded all the enumeration of powers in there. So when those uh, who are crying the loudest that we need a BBA, if, if we had that BBA that, that they're talking about uh, and their taxes go up, they can't be crying at that point because they can't have their cake and eat it too, essentially. Well, that's true. That's true. Well, hopefully, maybe their taxes can be raised, not, a, not us. <laughs> <laughs> Just everyone that voted for it, please. Yeah, that's an interesting approach there. But the main thing here is it's not likely to balance the budget anyway. If we don't have an escape clause in there, such as during times of national emergency, would it be wise to say Congress has to balance the budget no matter what? Even during times of war, if we're fighting a war and we've run out of money, you just have to surrender, go down as a conquered nation protecting your balanced budget. Is that wise strategy? Of course not. That's ridiculous. So we need to have these types of provisions where Congress can borrow money to execute a war in order to protect our nation if we need to. Well, right now, for example, we're, we're continuing in this war on terror against ISIS and other sure. uh, radical Islamic uh, militants throughout the world. Um, if the Congress proposes a budget that is balanced, but the sitting president, whether it's a Barack Obama, a Donald Trump, or someone else in the future, if they don't like that budget because it, it constrains their ability to spend on the projects that they as the president wish, they can declare a national emergency in the name of the war on terror, in the name of some other crisis, to then uh, suspend that restriction, thus allowing sure. Congress to give them that bloated budget that they want to have. Right, and consider the fact that they're already doing this anyway. They're already declaring national emergencies all the time. We have, last I saw, about 30 simultaneous national emergencies. So I don't think there will be any need for them to declare a national emergency special just to be able to get past the balanced budget requirement. They so, already have several. So essentially, if even if they have this balanced budget amendment written out, ratified by the states, mm -hmm. uh, it would not even be... It, it couldn't even go into effect already because of all these emergencies that are already in place. Correct. So essentially the BBA would already be nullified from the moment it's, it's ratified <laughs> if they follow the BBA as it's written with the except the, uh, with the with escape, the escape clause. clause there, yes. Absolutely. So all that time and money, um, that would be put into having, uh, an Article 5 convention for the proposal of just getting this one BBA, uh, would all be essentially wasted. Yes, absolutely.
Now, headed back to the left, uh, we're going to hear Jank from the Young Turks and Wolfpack arguing why he thinks it's strategically wise to go for an amendment by calling for a convention of states rather than going through Congress itself. And I'll admit right up front that maybe I'm being a little unfair by not playing the opposing side, making their own arguments for why they want to go through Congress for an amendment rather than going through the states, but I, I promise that every argument I have heard that side make gets addressed in these upcoming clips. I'm not excluding any arguments on purpose. Where we do have disagreement is the convention. Uh, so it's easy to say, let's do legislation. And I support every attempt at legislation. In this Congress, in this Congress, you're going to get legislation. Okay. Then you're going to get 67 senators to call for an amendment. Does anyone anyone believe that's possible so all right ben god bless your heart in okay this, in this <laughs> all right the next one <laughs> all right let the record note that three americans raise their hands <laughs> um so uh for uh, our friends who believe a convention uh, is too risky i i'd like to s state for the record what i think almost every progressive in the country knows we are not winning we're, it's not 2114, to use a base, uh, football analogy. It's 49 nothing. We're getting slaughtered. Now, I remember the first discussion I had in this case with Common Cause, uh, uh, and I asked, okay, what is the alternative if you're not going to go to the states? And it was uh, two things. One was demographic changes. I don't know if that takes two or three decades. I don't know how many decades that takes. The other one was the Supreme Court. How's that working out? Um, so that is, in my opinion, and I think the opinion shared by a lot, but we'll have the discussion, not a very viable path, and it can be overturned by the next Supreme Court. There is only one thing that cannot be overturned. That is a constitutional amendment. And unfortunately, there's only one pathway right now to get that constitutional amendment, and that is to go to the states. Now, I have great news for you. At the state level, the corruption is not anywhere near the uh, level it is at the national. So in the national level, the corruption is nearly complete. I would argue for the Republican Party, it is at least 98%. Unfortunately, for the Democratic Party, you could argue over percentages, but 80% is not a bad figure. So uh, it is nearly impossible to get them who are wedded to money in politics, who got their power through that money in politics, who won in this corrupt system to say, oh, yeah, golly gee, I guess you're right. I'll change that system. But at the state level, they do not have national power and they are more responsive to their voters and because they represent smaller and smaller number of voters. And those voters are overwhelmingly on our side, both Democratic and Republican voters. They are 93% uh, believe that politicians represent their donors and not their voters. They believe that, unfortunately, our democracy has become completely corrupted. So um, to uh, tackle the convention issue as quickly as I can, obviously, that's why I think strategically it is absolutely necessary. Uh, and then, of course, people say, well, there are risks. If you're winning and you're up 28 nothing, man, don't take any risks. Run up the middle, get your yard and a half, and punt, right? But 
uh, since we began that conversation, not just with Common Cause, but with everybody and all the different groups, what has happened? We have lost a 1,000 seats at the state level, making it much harder. We've lost the House of Representatives, we've lost the Senate, and we lost the presidency to Donald Trump. Every day that we don't do something is a day we fall further behind. While people tell us it's too risky to act, it is far, far riskier not to act in every possible way to get to that amendment. And uh, in, in terms of those so-called risks, Right now, they say, well, what if there's a, a unlimited uh, convention? Well, there, there are enough calls for an unlimited convention right now. So we'll get into the specifics of that as we, as we go here. Uh, and they have not done it. There are enough calls to call for a convention right now. They have not done it. So it is not true that you could have an unlimited convention. It's just not. Uh, and everything that a convention does is to propose an amendment. That is also inarguable. You can read Article 5 for yourself. Article 5 says that, it can, uh, that a, whatever is proposed, either through Congress or a convention, must be ratified by three-quarters of the states. It is one of the hardest constitutions in the world to amend. You must get three-quarters of the states to ratify. Lucky for us, we represent the only issue in the country that three-quarters of the states actually agree to which is that money in politics has corrupted and nearly destroyed our democracy. Let's take it to the voters at the state level, and that is our pathway to victory. Now, one of the main arguments against calling for a convention of states is the fear of what's called a runaway convention. Basically, a runaway convention would be where we say we're just uh, calling a convention to propose a specific amendment on, like, getting money out of politics or not letting people vote for senators or whatever. Um, but the, if it ran away, then all the rules could go out the window and we could rewrite the entire Constitution and it would be a mess. That's the fear. And it turns out that both the left and the right are afraid of this happening. So like the left fears that the right would figure out a way to ban abortion in the Constitution. And the right probably fears that the left would figure out a way to strip the right to bear machine guns or the right to use prisoners as slaves or whatever it is the right worries about. So next up, this is actually Mark Levin, author of The Liberty Amendments, assuring his audience that there should be no fear of a runaway convention. On June 11, 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, George Mason of Virginia, one of the most underrated of the founding fathers and one of the greatest men in American history, who had drafted Virginia's Declaration of Rights, the precursor to the Declaration of Independence. He responded to some of the delegates who didn't see the necessity of having the states propose amendments, which he strongly advocated for. In Madison's notes at the Constitutional Convention, he writes about Mason's comments, Colonel Mason urged the necessity of such a provision. The plan now to be formed will certainly be defective, this is what Mason said, 
as the Confederation has been found on trial to be, meaning the Articles of Confederation. Amendments, therefore, will be necessary, and it will be better to provide for them in an easy, regular, and constitutional way than to trust the chance and violence. It would be improper, Mason said, to require the consent of the national legislature because they may abuse their power and refuse to their consent on that very account. And so there was some debate. And then two days before the end of the Constitutional Convention on September 17th, that was the last day, two days before on September 15th, Mason was back at it. Mason, alarmed that Congress would have the sole power to propose amendments, continued to insist on state authority to call for conventions. George Mason explained that an oppressive Congress would never agree to propose amendments curtailing its own tyranny. Back to Madison's notes, citing Mason. Colonel Mason thought the plan of amending the Constitution exceptional and dangerous as the proposing of amendments is in both the modes to depend and in the first, immediately in the second, ultimately on Congress. No amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government should become oppressive, as he verily believed would be the case. Quote, unquote, Madison's Notes, September 15, 1787. Mr. Governor Morris of Pennsylvania, Mr. Eldridge Jerry of Massachusetts, moved to amend the article so as to require a convention on application of two-thirds of the states. And there you have it. Now, under both amendment procedures, the Constitution requires that three-fourths of the states ratify the amendments, either by their state legislatures or state conventions. So again, rather than Congress proposing amendments, what's suggested here is that the states can and should convene to do the same thing. Now, I was originally very skeptical of amending the Constitution by the state convention process. I, like many of you, was concerned it could turn into a runaway caucus. And as an ardent defender of the Constitution who reveres the brilliance of the framers, I assume this would play disastrously into the hands of the the, uh, statists. But today, I am a confident and enthusiastic advocate for the process. The text of Article 5 makes abundantly clear that there is a serious check in place whether the product of Congress or the state convention, a proposed amendment has no effect at all unless, quote, ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by the conventions in three-fourths thereof. This, ladies and gentlemen, should extinguish anxiety that the state convention process could hijack the Constitution. It is impossible. And after more research and reflection, the issue crystallized further for me. If the framers were alarmed that states calling for, quote, a convention for proposing amendments, unquote, could undo the entire undertaking of the Constitutional Convention, then why did they craft, adopt, and endorse the language? 
And it was strongly endorsed in the Federalist Papers by Madison and Hamilton. And I'm not going to read it to you, but it's in the book Federalist 43 as a, as a perfect example. Madison writing. Or Federalist 85. Hamilton writing. And here's the beauty of the process. Congress's role in the state application process is minimal and ministerial. And it couldn't be otherwise, because the framers and ratifiers adopted the state convention process for the purpose of establishing an alternative to the congressionally initiated amendment process. That was the point. Now, similar but different, this is a law professor from the left who very much wants to see these reforms. And as, as you'll hear, he's gone through all the research and is arguing uh, from the left why we shouldn't be worried about either a runaway convention or pretty much any of the other concerns that the, uh, the convention of states naysayers have. Let's bring Ken Chesteg into the conversation. We're very glad to have a law professor who's looked into some of the legal issues around this. This isn't something that comes up every day, of course, in American law or life. Uh, but Ken, what have you found? Why are you comfortable with the convention strategy? Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Vicki and Jenk. Um, look forward to hearing from everybody. Um, so... About a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, we tried to get this through the Wyoming legislature without success. So uh, three of us, uh, Shelby Shadwell and Lynn Morrison, and uh, I saw them both here in the room, and, and me and a few others, um, decided that we would try and put this on the ballot. And the first question that we encountered was, what are we putting on the ballot? Are we going to ask pretty please, Mr. Congress, can you do this for us? Or are we going to go all the way and ask for um, actual voters to weigh in and say, yes, uh, we want a convention of states because we don't think Congress is going to do it. So, And we'd heard all the stories, all the horror stories about how a, con a convention can run away and there's no rules, so they'll make up the rules and they can change the, amend change the amendment process and everything, all those. I heard all those things. Um, so the first thing we did was do some research uh, to find out, are they true? Um, what are the risks? Because we, we knew this was going to be a critical decision before we decided to go forward with the petition. Which way do we go? Uh, so we did the research and discovered um, a couple of interesting things. First of all, that the uh, fear of a convention is bipartisan, cross left and right, both groups on the left and the right. And Vicky's absolutely right. There's a number of groups on the left, including Common Cause, that oppose it. There's groups on the right that oppose it, including ALEC. Uh, Alec is opposed to this, so it's kind of a strange bedfellow situation. Um, but when I did dug into it, it, we finally concluded that the position against the amendment or against the, the convention call uh, is wrong for three very important reasons. Uh, number one, it's historically factually wrong. The, the, the claims about a, the, the, the 1787 convention running away is factually incorrect. That is not true. Um, but also we felt that, that these r arguments were legally inaccurate, which I'll get to in a second. But also, and this is the key one for us, strategically unwise. And Jenk has already outlined some of the reasons why we think it's strategically unwise. So let me just start first by talking about why I think it's historically wrong. 
Um, the, the argument is that um, the only convention we ever had was a runaway convention, um, that the Articles of Confederation were, the Congress called a convention of states and to, to amend the articles, and instead the convention ran away and it uh, proposed a whole new con- constitution, constitution, which was a runaway convention. Uh, and that's two points. Number one, um, if that's true, then the Constitution is invalid. Why are you supporting it? <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that didn't make sense. But more importantly, it's factually not true. Con- the Continental Congress did not call that convention in 1787. Here's what actually happened. In 1786, Virginia, there, so the Articles of Confederation were not working. Um, there was all kinds of problems. Most, in, most of, of the problems in, involved commerce between the states. They were taxing each other, and there was a lot of problems with interstate commerce. Um, so there was a convention uh, called by the state of Virginia, and only five states showed up. Um, but they all agreed that there are problems with the Articles of Confederation, and we think we need a, a much wider con- uh, convention involving all the states and more, dealing with more than just the commerce problem. There's a lot of other problems with the Articles that need to be fixed. So Virginia called for a convention to meet in Philadelphia in 1787. Six other Six states joined that, uh, and ultimately, Congress said, if you want to, go ahead. Uh, but Congress did not call it. It was actually called by the states. So it, the process it was, and, and actually, Congress at that time could not have possibly called for a convention of states because the Articles of Confederation did not include that power, did not say that this is a way you can do this. So they had to step outside of the Articles of Confederation uh, and called, the states themselves called this. They met in, in, in Philadelphia, and the call was not make some minor changes to the articles. The call was, we, have, we need a general convention. If you re, I, I read, last night I, I read the uh, report from the Annapolis Convention in 1786 uh, that said we want a general convention to, to discuss everything. So the states called for a general convention. How can you run away from that? That gives the state, the convention, the power to propose whatever it wanted to propose, and it proposed a new, con- a new constitution. It was not running away from its power. It was exercising the power given to it by the states which called for this general convention. So that's the first point. The, the first convention was not a runaway convention. It was called by the states independent of the articles. So factually, that, that point is in, absolutely incorrect. It's legally incorrect. I think um, the uh, the fact that the Constitution doesn't uh, that the current Constitution, Article Five, does not have rules for how a convention should run, has been taken by those who oppose the convention to mean there, therefore there are no rules and the convention can do whatever it wants. That's the argument you hear all the time. In fact, all that means is the constitutions generally don't have those kinds of detailed rules. Uh, There's lots of stuff. The the constitution states states general principles, broad principles. And 
um, then leaves it to other bodies that it creates to to come up with the rules. So the courts come up with rules, Congress writes rules, or the administrative branch writes rules. Uh, the Constitution is not a rule based, uh, a rule making thing. So it's not surprising to me that Article Five doesn't have specific rules for how convent. You need to find other sources of rules, and there are several of them. Uh, the Due Process Clause is one that we need to honor people's expectations. Um, but the biggest one to me is simple common law, the common law of agency. Now, I'm a law professor, and I can tell you um, with some authority, I think, that this is a typical first-year law school concept. Uh, when a principal says, I want to appoint somebody as my agent to do something, that agent has one has only the power given to it by the principal. So if the state says, I appoint this delegate, and we call them delegates, they are receiving power from a higher authority, the state, I appoint my this delegate to do one thing, write an amendment on this issue. It doesn't have, that agent does not have the right to do anything more than that one thing. So legally, I think, the, it's impossible for a convention, it's legally impossible. We're asking the wrong question. We ask, how can we stop the convention from running away? The actual question is, what gives it the right to do that in the first place? How could it possibly have the right to do something that it's not been authorized to do? And finally, I'll close with this, um, and because Jenks already talked about strategically unwise. Uh, I think strategically uh, this is the only tool we have that has a chance of success. Why deprive ourselves of that one tool that we think has a chance for success? Uh, and a final point, um, there are those, and Alec actually does not want a runaway convention, but there are some on the right who say, if we get a convention, we're going to do whatever we want. Uh, why do we want to give them aid and comfort? If we're standing here saying a convention can run away, then uh, the, the, the convention call that's closest to getting this done is a, uh, a right-wing side, uh, the balanced budget amendment. They're close. And if they get the convention, they can say, hey, look, all the people on the left say it can run away. Let's do it. Let's run away. They say we can. Strategically, it's not smart to make that argument. Uh, I don't think it's possible for a, con a convention to run away it's highly unlikely, uh, and I, therefore, we made the choice at Wyoming Promise to go for the Convention of States, and uh, let's hope we get it. Thank you. Now, finally, to wrap up, a slightly different kind of clip. We've been hearing for the whole show these different factions of these different opposing sides. So we have the left. They want money out of politics. But there are different groups that disagree on how. On the right, they want all kinds of anti-democratic policies and silly things that you and I probably disagree with. But then there are also factions on the right who are opposed to that for a variety of reasons. And, and, you know, honestly, I didn't have time to get into all of the reasons of the opposing side, et cetera. But the, the through line for all of this is that uh, there was mostly talk about how the left wants one thing, the right wants something completely different. And when we're talking about passing constitutional amendments, it takes a lot more than 50% plus one to get something like that passed. And this last clip is the best conversation I heard that discusses how 
the policies that the left wants, or the, the policies that primarily the left is pushing, are really incredibly bipartisan. There is a lot of support on the conservative side for getting money out of politics, for de-rigging the system, uh, making it so that people's voices actually count more, not less, which is completely different than all of those amendments being proposed by the right. There is no left-wing constituency that is in favor of any of those policies that the right is pushing. So, so th this last conversation, as I said, is, is the best argument for why the right really is beginning to wake up and recognize that getting money out of politics isn't just in the interest of the left wing, but is really in everyone's interest. So I actually interviewed Jonathan Pudner uh, at the RNC convention, and the question I put to him was, look, conservatives have really done well with money in politics. Why should they uh, abandon something the Supreme Court says they're allowed to use. Yeah, so, um, you know, I talked to a lot of conservatives, and, and you're right, the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United, which created this problem, was the five conservatives uh, on the court deciding that case. And so normally their instinct was, well, it must be good for us. And then they see the Koch brothers and others on the conservative side advancing their cause. But I think now seven years into this system, more and more are realizing that is a losing game. They can win in the short term, perhaps, but then Americans aren't stupid. We know when we're not actually being represented, but we're being played. And conservatives know that too. And in the end, the power they get, if it's being used to advance global corporate interests, because a lot of the money is coming from global corporate interests, if environment, energy, healthcare, you know, healthcare is run by pharma companies, raising prices for everybody, energy policy run by global you know, petrochemical companies. Um, that doesn't help uh, conservatives. So people see it. And so over time, I think, and it's only been seven years, what we have is not a conservative America, despite what they thought they'd bought, perhaps. Instead, what we have is a destabilizing, fragmented, falling apart America where people are getting angry. And that's not a conservative value. Conservatives uh, want stability, order, effective government. And so, you know, that's that's what I say. But often they say it to me is, you know, we need to do something. And the beauty of a constitutional amendment is it's not going to happen unless we do it together. It's almost like, all right, as Winston Churchill said, Eric, uh, Americans always do the right thing after exhausting all the other possibilities. So I think on both sides, we feel like, OK, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried. Nobody's winning or advancing what they really care about. So we have a lot of comments about overturning Citizens United. So my question is to kind of build off of that is what does that process look like and what happens afterwards? Great question. And so so to, there's, there's two ways to overturn Citizens United or any other Supreme Court case. One is the court wakes up and realizes they made a catastrophic mistake. That uh, takes a long, long time. Brown versus Board of Education overturned the so-called separate but equal racist doctrine, but it took decades and decades. The only other way to overturn a Supreme Court decision that's wrong in interpreting the Constitution, as Citizens United did when it struck down our campaign finance laws, is a constitutional amendment. And the way to do that, it's up to us, because we need, under Article 5 of the Constitution, amendments are proposed by either two-thirds of Congress or a convention, an amendment convention called by two-thirds of the states. 
that amendment that then is proposed has to be ratified in three-quarters of the states. So that means 38 states have to ratify the amendment. So that's the technical process. The um, legalistic answer under Article 5 is one thing. The ultimate answer, though, is it, amendments happen when the American people mobilize, and that is what we're seeing now. So, as I said, all 27 amendments passed two-thirds of Congress, ratified three-quarters of the states, and uh, eight of those decisions, or eight of those amendments, overturned Supreme Court cases. So Shane O'Neill is asking, "What about overturning Buckley versus Vallejo?" Wow. Yeah, great question. <laughs> Going back to the seventies, and you're right, Shane. That's where it all started. The Buckley case, Buckley versus Vallejo, after the Watergate scandal that drove a president from the White House in in, in scandal, which in a lot of ways was about money and politics. We had a pretty good law uh, to get money out of politics. The Supreme Court struck that down in large part in a case called Buckley, Buckley versus Vallejo. That's where the idea of money being speech first came from that Citizens United sort of took and put on steroids. So, yes, absolutely. The amendment overturns Citizens United. It, it overturns Buckley to the extent it did that and everything in between that took us down this dark road that we're now living with. So, yeah, it corrects literally the last 40 years of Supreme Court law that changed you know, corporations into human beings with rights and money is somehow being an innocuous thing called speech instead of a corrupting, you know, undue influence. In summation, we just heard clips today starting with the Tom Hartman program in conversation with Move to Amend. Hip Hughes on YouTube ran through the 11 so-called Liberty Amendments. Democracy Now! hosted a debate between an all-of-the-above strategy, including a constitutional amendment, and a strictly reformist approach to getting money out of politics. The New American, though I don't know much about them, I do know that they are far right-wing enough to have the John Birch Society advertising on their website. They were the ones arguing that a uh, balanced budget amendment, although a nice idea from their perspective, wouldn't really do what they wanted it to. Then we heard Jank from the Young Turks and Wolfpack arguing for a convention of states as a matter of good policy and political strategy. Mark Levin made the case from the right as to why no one should be worried about a runaway convention. Law professor Ken Chestick is the one we heard arguing from the left and explaining not just the nuts and bolts of the Article 5 convention, but also why we shouldn't be worried about it running away or breaking down in some other way. And finally, we just heard from Rebel HQ, another YouTube channel affiliated with the Young Turks who advocate for a convention of states strategy, speaking with Jeff Clements, president of American Promise, an organization advocating that the amendment should go through Congress, all talking about the emerging right-left coalition who believe in getting money out of politics one way or another. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips. Uh, I'm focusing today on uh, more content from those conservative shows I found, and I, because I found them, if not interesting, let's say enlightening, in that it, uh, you know, what was said on those clips said a lot about the way conservatives think, uh, some based on what they said, some based on how they said it. So I'm going to go through a, a few of those. 
To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in. Hope everyone's staying warm. Uh, Just finished the episode on government shutdown. Thank you so much. The history and information in that was uh, priceless and really what I wanted to hear. So that was great. Question, um, I I noticed in the middle of there, um, it talked about how some aspects of the government, if they still had money left in the budget, would continue on, whereas others, if they didn't, they'd have to stop at that point. That leads me to believe that it's if a department, whatever the department, human rights, let's say, has funding like rainy day funds still allowed in their account, they could stay open. And I know money's tight, but if the idea is for some of those crucial departments like that, if they could squirrel away a 30-day supply of payroll, they could they could potentially stay open so that a government shutdown like this could have no impact. Am I understanding that correct? Um, you know, I just again, I know money's tight, and that that to do that would be almost impossible. But I'm just trying to understand if I if I understood that correctly, that would be a possibility. Anyway, just just was thinking that out loud. Anyway, thanks for the show. Stay warm. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I thought here at the end, I would let you know where we stand. Of course, a lot of these clips I played in the show today are months or years old because this uh, this conversation has been going on for a while and it hasn't changed that much. So uh, so a clip from five years ago is pretty much saying the same thing that uh, that a person would say today, uh, you know, on on any of these uh, specific topics we covered. So uh, where we stand at the moment, the Wolfpack campaign to call for a convention of states to propose an amendment to get money out of politics. Uh, they are up to five states calling for that convention. The total needed, I wish I'd looked this up, it's like 36, somewhere in that range. So they're not particularly close, but uh, you know, they, they've made some progress. And as they will be the first to tell you, they are being hampered as they go by the other progressive organizations who disagree with their strategy, those organizations don't just disagree. They're actively working against them and are going around to states where Wolfpack is campaigning and telling those legislators, don't pass this this resolution uh, calling for a convention of states that Wolfpack is pushing. It's too dangerous. It's too scary, etc. cetera. Uh, so, so that's where that uh, campaign stands. And then the conservative version, the convention of states, uh, program, project, whatever they call it. It was harder to find a, a definitive number. I had heard a lot more. I, I thought that they were up in the uh, low 30s 
I couldn't find that number. I found a video from really recently. It was like January 20. Well, I wonder if it was 2018 or 2019. Anyway, it was like pretty recent. And they mentioned that uh, they were up to 13 states. So in any case, the conservative campaign is further along than the the left-wing one or the, honestly, the bipartisan, nonpartisan one to, uh, to, to get money out of politics, the like balanced budget amendment and <laughs> don't let you vote for your senators amendment. They're making more progress. They started their campaign earlier. And, and as usual, the right wing is, I don't know, often more organized and, and, and more apt to uh, sort of jump at ideas like this and, and, and snap to um, probably better funded as well. Uh, so that's where we stand in the campaigns. Uh, we're probably not right on the brink of having one of these conventions, but something to keep an eye out uh, for my two main takeaways. Having done this research is that one, the more I learned, the less I was worried about the right wing convention for, for the same reason that we shouldn't be worried about a runaway convention I am also less worried that any of those amendments that they were proposing could pass in three quarters of the states in the country to actually ratify those amendments. So I'm much less worried about about their chances of getting that passed. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned at all or just write it off. If it, if it happened, if the convention happened, then it would be an enormous defensive fight that we would have to, to, uh, to hold to, uh, you know, to tamp that down. Um, but I was less worried in general. And then two, it's really interesting to hear that both the right and the left are launching these campaigns to amend the constitution because they both feel like the country has gone so far away from them in the opposite direction that something drastic must be done to bring it back. So the left thinks, as I do, that the whole country has basically been sold to corporations, which almost incidentally work in favor of right-wing ideology. And yet the right thinks that the whole country is basically one big blue state because the federal government has overreached so much and imposed so much liberalism on everybody that no matter how hard they try, they can't undo all the progressive ideas that have now been just basically baked into the system unquestioned by everyone. What to make of that exactly? Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure. So there's your rundown uh, of the state of the 28th Amendment, whatever it eventually turns out to be. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every Every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.